everyone. Greetings from Stockholm at the uh, Stockholm Eats a Food Forum. I'm here with the fabulous Modi Matsama. I'm Fabrice de Klerk, Eats a Science Director. Modi, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Uh, thrilled to have you both be present at Stockholm and also an honor to have Welcome Trust, which is one of the three founding members of Eats here present at the forum. Let's, let's just start right off. Uh, so tell us a bit about yourself. Who, who are you, Modi? Where do you come from and, and what brings you here? Sure. So hi, I'm Modi Motsama. I'm uh, the Senior Science Lead on Food Systems on the Welcome Trust Our Planet Our Health Programme. And I'm here today because we're a partner um, with the EAT Foundation and have been collaborating since its inception. We're one of the founding uh, members. And um, yeah, we're here to kind of listen to um, a variety of people, meet lots of people to find out what they're we're currently working on on sustainable food systems, um, what they think are the ideas that we should be researching um, and supporting in the future um, to really progress and drive action and progress on the area of sustainable food systems. Um, and we've been doing a few sessions, um, having a game that people have been able to play um, at the forum and also having a session on alternative proteins where some of our researchers were presenting some of their findings and there was a bit of a debate about what their role is as part of the solution towards helping people eat less meat. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I hope we get to some of those debates as well. And I realize yeah. that one of the things that we're really hoping about the forum is that it creates a place for us to maybe have some of the unconventional collaborations or, or discussions and and using that as a means of, of generating and identifying what are the, you know, the next questions mm-hmm. that we should be uh, tackling. Let's start. Uh, let's start with food. So at breakfast, what is uh, it that's on your plate? And, and what is it then uh, that uh, really gets you motivated and excited when you get up in the morning? What's uh, the first thing that starts your, your morning routine, morning ritual? Uh, good question. I will start by saying I'm not the biggest breakfast person. Uh, lunch? Probably because I'm not a morning person. <laughs> my my favorite breakfast uh, is fruit. I like having fruit. I like having a small amount of fruit juice sometimes. A cup of tea and maybe some yogurt. Yeah, something nice and light nice. Is, is what I generally start the day with. And uh, with sugar with your tea? No. No, no sugar with your tea. Yeah, I'm trying to cut the sugar out of my coffee, but it's a long journey for me. I know, coffee is a bit worse because it's more strong. Yeah. <sighs> Certainly trying to cut some of the sugar out, out of my diet. So so Welcome Trust, I think really a pioneer in terms of really getting different disciplines together. I mean, my, my background's more in agriculture and environment. And I think we've been struggling at this for a long time. But Welcome Trust, Our Planet, Our Health, I think really was one of the first places where we began to think about both environmental health and uh, and human health. So so tell us a little bit about the origins and, and how you uh, you arrived to work on this very cool project. Sure. Um, so the Our Planet, Our Health program has been going for about three years. And what we aim to do is to make the world a healthy home for humanity, particularly through things like looking at the way we produce and consume food, um, the way we design and build cities to help them promote people to have more active lifestyles and also, um, for instance, reduce air pollution. And then also looking at things like the links between climate and health. And I guess the Wellcome Trust decided to invest significant amounts of money into this issue of planetary health. Um, in recognition of the fact that, you know, as a human race, we won't be able to survive in the future if we don't have a planet on which to live. And at the moment, climate change is one of the biggest, um, you know, challenges facing the world, and there isn't really enough action. So we're, we're very much interested in investing in the research that can really drive action to address this this important challenge. Yeah. 
Absolutely fundamental. My, my father's a cancer researcher. My mother's a nurse and brother's an emergency room doctor and, and sister-in-law's a dermatologist. And I think one of the things that we've we've been surprised over the past decade is, you know, initially we thought we were in separate fields. And, and the more we're seeing much more convergence between medicine and uh, environmental sciences and recognizing that health, environmental health, planetary health underpins a human health as well. So I think this alignment is one that's been long time coming. And we're quite, quite excited to see this increasing collaboration between those, those disciplines. What do you think is one of the biggest challenges in getting these, these, these individuals from very disparate arenas to begin to, to work on these? And, and particularly in the context of welcome where you're creating that space, mm-hmm. what do you see as one of the biggest difficulties in really progressing an integration, but that recognizes, again, the value of this, the different disciplines in advancing that agenda. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, there are a number of challenges, I think, in the research field. One of them in the past has been funding, and that is also reflected in the health sector, the way governments are organized. Um, you know, most funding and targets are set on a um, discipline by discipline, kind of department by department level. And that then discourages people from collaborating because you don't get any um, points. You're not rewarded for doing this extra work um, when you've got your own priorities and targets on which you're going to be measured on. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things we were really aiming to do with the Planetary Health Programme for researchers is take away those disincentives to collaboration by actually, you know, having this funding that actually really encourages and supports interdisciplinary action. And so in order to be eligible for our funding, researchers have to show that there's multiple disciplines involved in the research that they're doing. There are still barriers, other barriers for the scientists in particular. For instance, um, you know, publishing in journals, often it can be quite hard to get journals that are interdisciplinary, um, papers that are interdisciplinary published in research journals. Before I came to um, the Wellcome Trust, I spent a lot of time working in a policy development advocacy NGOs and working particularly um, on things like food and alcohol um, policy. And even then within government, you know, working on obesity, it was very much you were just interested in the government was mainly interested in looking at how you could reduce um, the calorie consumption of consumers instead of also thinking about the other sustainability considerations. Um, and for a long time, you know, we were trying to get some of the sustainability considerations on the agenda if because one of the reasons they were tackling NCDs certainly in the UK was or, or diets in the UK was because non-communicable diseases were linked to poor diets, which are very high and prevalent in the UK. Um, and things like cancer are linked to the high levels of consumption of red meat and reducing red meat would be both good for health and the environment. But those kinds of, you know, integrated policies across government were very hard to get at the time. You had the Department of Food and Environment working separate and agriculture working separately from the Department of Health. When the Atlantic Commission was launched in, in January, so a lot of the main message that came out, particularly in, in the British press, but also in, in the American press, was was meat and climate. And that's certainly a very, very critical issue. Uh, but what we're also seeing is um, is maybe less attention to the opportunity uh, in terms of increasing fruit, nuts, vegetable, uh, whole grain, legume uh, consumption. And I, I'm just wondering a bit about what your reaction has been or what your, your observation has been from, from that launch, what you heard in the UK, and how do you think that we should be approaching this notion of dietary shifts, both the meat part, but also maybe some other elements of diet? Absolutely. I mean, I think I really welcomed the Eat Lancet's comprehensive focus on the diet. 
Yeah, meat is one part, but the other big question and challenge is the biodiversity on the plate, as you articulated. You know, the Lancet report showed that virtually no countries are meeting the biodiverse diets in terms of, you know, more fruits, vegetables, pulses, beans, nuts. That's a global challenge for all countries. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's what I do. So the global <clears throat> disease paper came out right after the Lancet commissions. And, and, and the meat one we're seeing is a very regional one. And there's yes. a huge challenge for for Western countries to reduce consumption. And I'm, I'm glad that we're putting uh, some of this challenge on, on developed countries, not just on developing countries. But, but, the, but the universality of underconsumption of these protective foods, which are yeah. so critical to health, is one that, that I, I really hope will gain a lot more attention. I certainly hope so. I mean, for many years, you know, the fruit and vegetable agenda hasn't had much attention. Pulses even less so. You know, everyone knows about fiber day, even though there's not very much policy and action on it. But pulses are just an unknown and, you know, I think that's one of the things I'd really like to see a big focus on in terms of action and policy by governments, the private sector, all different um, actors in the food system, really looking at how we can increase consumption of those protective foods. And that's, yeah, that's a big gap. So let's take us back to, to yourself a little bit. So have you tried the planetary health diet? And uh, what's your biggest challenge in terms of trying to achieve that uh, that diet? And where, where are you being flexible in terms of adapting that to, to your personal taste? <laughs> any, any kids at home as well? or No, no, no? kids at okay, home. Okay, so this is a personal okay. challenge for, for Modi. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I mean, generally, I, I like to think that I eat healthily. In terms of the challenge... What would it be? I like diversity, which helps with, you know, ensuring that I'm not eating the same things all the time. And you're lucky. I mean, in London, you guys have huge diversity in terms very, of ethnicity. Yeah, very spoiled for choice. I mean, you can literally go to any part of London, you know, different parts of London, and you can have the Chinese, the Thai, the Greek, the Turkish, you know, the African. There's so much diversity in terms of, you know, food options. It's just fantastic for that. Yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles and that was uh, Thai, Vietnamese, Mexican, Latino. And, and now in France, which has fantastic cuisine, but I have to say I miss the ethnic diversity that we have in, in the Londons, in the Los Angeles and San Francisco's. So. Yeah, so I'm really lucky. I think the only thing I would probably struggle with is I quite like sweet things. I quite like cakes. Um, <laughs> not too much cake. Not too much cake, no. I mean, it's part of that diversity and chocolate. And so those are the things I probably wouldn't cut out entirely. But, I, you know, at the moment, I'm, you know, I'm lucky I'm a healthy weight. And I don't eat, I don't eat them in excess quantities. But, yeah, I think generally because I'm a nutritionist, um, I try as much as possible to to eat a healthy, diverse diet. And your approach to meat? My approach to meat is um, I do like eating meat, but I um, I don't like too much of it. And so I often have meat-free meals on a regular basis throughout the week. I also personally don't like cooking meat. Um, and so it's something I will eat as a treat when I'm out as opposed to at home. So that helps as well with just not eating that much of it. That's a nice strategy, right? Meat is a treat. And I'm often reminded that uh, you know, for my grandparents, it was the, you know, the Sunday roast beef. So you had, you had the beef once a week and you had other forms of meat uh, throughout uh, the week. I think one, one of my, my biggest challenges uh, has been the whole grains. So uh, I typically am the person cooking breakfast on Saturday and Sunday when, when I'm home and my daughter loves crepes. And I remember one morning she was coming downstairs and big smile. Oh, 
oh, we're having crepes this morning. And then she comes over and like, oh, they're the brown crepes. <laughs> and she was just so disappointed that I had put 25% whole wheat flour in that crepe. And it's like, oh, how am I going to foster this transition? I've been trying to sneak it in. And I think she's slowly capitulating. But, uh, but definitely that's one place where our family's been a, a bit challenged is more whole grains in diet rather than the refined grains. Yeah, yeah. You know, that kind of thing can be quite hard. And I mean, if it's your favorite foods, then, you know, I think there's a trade-off. Do you have less of them, but just have the unhealthy versions or more and then have the healthy versions? I tend to go for just less of what I like than more of what I don't like. And you, so you think this uh, this diet is a huge challenge or or how do we how do we get people to slowly seg into it? Uh, and what do you think are the biggest challenges in terms of getting communities or the public at large to to recognize its values, to enjoy what it contributes uh, and to, to see it again as an opportunity to to explore ethnic diversity without having to increase our carbon footprint and traveling to all these fantastic parts of the world? Yeah, good question. I do think it's a challenge. Um in high meat eating countries, there are lots of people for whom meat is um, a regular part of their day. And, you know, they'll eat it multiple times a day if they can. And, you know, there's a big cultural thing around meat. So, I mean, like even like for my, my own family, my parents' generation didn't eat very much meat. It was a treat when they were growing up. And so where, where, where are they from? Um, Kenya. Kenya. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so my dad, you know, a meal for him is not a meal unless he, he eats meat once a day. He'd, he'd, he was not a very heavy meat eater. Yamachoma. Yeah, well, he likes nyamachoma a little bit. He's not one of these, like, you know, but there are lots of Kenyans who love a lot of, you know, nyamachoma. The, the like, Kenyan barbecue. Yeah, yeah. exactly, with um, with a beer on the side. So, like, you know, when, whenever, like, having a meal with family, I quite like the Kenyan foods that are vegetarian-based. So mm. they have, they be cooked with lots of beans and pulses, often cooked in coconut with, you know, rice or just maize and beans. And it's just so delicious. I really like those vegetarian options. Um, whereas my dad doesn't particularly like them, you know, for him, it's like, it reminds him of his childhood where that was like everyday food. Whereas for me, it's like, you know, I could eat it every day just cause I really like it, but it's just a different generational divide, you know, for one, one generation, um, that's like not so nice. Whereas for other, you know, a different generation, it's like, you know, a treat and not just a treat, but actually something that, you know, I really enjoy eating is traditional Kenyan foods. So, you know, things kind of change. And I think there's a lot of people, um, for whom that's a challenge. And then also the, the diverse protective foods. Fruit and vegetables can take time to prepare. They can be more expensive. So and um, people on lower incomes might not necessarily be able to afford, afford them. Um, you know, some beans and pulses can take quite a bit of time to repair because you have to soak them for a long time before you cook them. Lots of people don't really know how to even cook them. So there's a lot of barriers um, towards getting people to eat more of those foods, um, which we need to overcome. Yeah, it's incredible how many people have forgotten how to cook. I was with uh, uh, some students from Sciences Po in Paris and and just was a, a bit shocked at how few in France, which is supposed to be a culinary capital of the world, students were saying, we're not sure that we know how to cook anymore. And so one of the things that we're certainly doing in our house is, is trying to make sure that when we prepare meals, that the, the kids are, are in there, they're cooking with us. And, uh, you know, we invite them to propose a, a recipe, you know, Wednesday is Chloe's day, Thursday is Camden's day. What do you want to cook? Where are we getting those ingredients? Uh, but really that, that passing on and that family time that's spent around cooking is, is an important, I think, behavior that helps with the transitions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also, you know, not all families have the opportunity to do that. If the parents are working multiple jobs, then, you know, they have to, you know, buy, often take, take away food that's quick and easy 
um, for their kids and they know their kids are going to like. But I mean, in an ideal world, that would happen. There's also, I mean, a, a big generation of families, like one of my friends, um, whose mom had a, a heart attack in her 50s. Um, I remember like all she used to eat was just processed foods like ready meals because that was what she'd been brought up on. Yeah. Um, and it was only when her mum had a heart attack that she then really started learning how to cook and, you know, eating more fresh, freshly cooked fruit and vegetables and stuff because that link between diet and health became immediately apparent in her family. But before that, you know, she just ate what she'd always eaten, which was just, you know, kind of, yeah, the easy ready meals, which are not very healthy often. Yeah, and I'm, so I'm hoping that we're going to transition to ready meals that uh, do t- are more positive nutrition. Uh, and I'm seeing some interactions with some of the companies that, that we've been engaging with in terms of making accessible and affordable, but nutritious and delicious uh, as part uh, of that uh, that agenda. Um, so, so I I think that that's really an area where the private sector should be much more proactive, uh, and I think it's also a place where they can both have impact and restore some of that trust uh, with the, with the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be nice for those products to move from the niche where they're only like, you know, five or 10% of the market to actually the mainstream. Absolutely. So, so Modi, welcome. You guys again have have been spearheading so much of of this work linking environmental health to, to human health. What's next? What do you see as some of the big priorities that you, that welcome would want to, to put more attention to both through your partners, your collaborators, but, but also your, your peers? Sure. So at the moment, we're developing our five-year strategy um, for the program, working out what the priorities are for us to invest in. Um, so we haven't yet finalized that process, but things that are emerging from speaking to um, a diverse range of stakeholders is um, the kind of the no-do gap. We kind of have an idea about what needs to happen in terms of, certainly, for instance, in terms of the shift towards um, healthy and sustainable diets. The Eat Lancet report has helped set these you know, targets within the planetary boundaries, but for health. Um, but not very many um, countries or private sector actors or even individuals are actually meeting those. So we need to have those scientific targets translated into um, national um, targets. And then we need to find out, you know, what are the, the governance make mechanisms, the policy frameworks that governments might adopt to create a level playing field for all the actors in the system to really, you know, do their part to help to help change things. So we're looking for the evidence um, that can drive action, whether it's finding out what's working, um, how things can be improved through evaluations of policies and initiatives, to, um, yeah, working out how to govern cities um, more effectively. So, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've certainly been seeing it. There's a tendency sometimes to to point fingers at one actor or the others, but I'm, I'm increasingly seeing that it's really collective complacency, that, that policy is, is misbehaving, that science is often misbehaving as well, and that the private sector is, is misbehaving in terms of achieving these challenges. And, and I really do hope that the work that we're doing together causes each of those domains to be a bit self-reflective in terms of how does my science really address these critical challenges? What policies uh, are uh, allowing farmers to contribute to producing the right food in, in the right way? And, and for the private sector, increasing access and availability. I think those those are really key challenges. As we begin to, to wrap up, we've been really impressed by the youth movement uh, that has really, I think, emphasized the sense of urgency. And I think rightfully also said, we want evidence that we're not just talking anymore, that we're, we're acting. What's your protest sign? 
if you're out in the streets of tomorrow, what's what's the protest march that you're you're out in the front of and that you're leading? That's a good question. You know, I'm passionate about a lot of things, you know, climate change, social justice issues, inequities in the world we see, where particularly people from um, low-income countries are underrepresented, whether it's at global policymaking fora, global conferences, um, where the decisions are made. To even, you know, inequities in the food system. In many countries, farmers have to be subsidised for them to make a living, whereas there is a lot of value created in the food system, but it's not distributed fairly or equally across, you know, all the actors involved. Um, But I think, you know, what really kind of makes change is the politics within which all this is happening. Rudolf Virchow, you know, is famous for saying uh, medicine is a social science and politics is medicine on a large scale. And actually what we need is that kind of medicine on a large scale where political leaders are really showing leadership in terms of recognising all these issues, whether it's climate change, social justice. That's what would get me out on the street, you know, protesting against the inaction in society to really tackle some of these massive injustices that are currently facing the planet and, and people as well. So, so important and so, so right on. I think, you know, a lot of the reaction landed has been, where is that social dimension? And I think that's something that those of us who work in biophysical sciences really need to be much, much better about. So, so on the flip side, what, do, what are you rooting for the most? Uh, what are you seeing in the news or what kind of actions are you saying? Yeah, this is, this is really motivating or, or something you might have heard here at the forum itself. So, well, I mean, you know, you mentioned the young people being out on the streets, you know, protesting against climate change. That is fantastic. And I, you know, completely cheer them on because I think they're the future, basically the future leaders. It's their world. And people take notice of, you know, what children say. Parents take notice of what their children say. And likewise, politicians take notice of what young people say as future voters. So that's one of the things that I'm finding really encouraging um, in terms of where the future is going, they get it. So I think there's hope. I completely agree with that. What a great note to end on. Modi, it's fantastic to have you here with us. Congratulations on all the great work the Welcome Trust is doing. I think it's true leadership in where science needs to be going. Uh, it's exemplary and it's really an honor and a pleasure to be working with you guys on this such important mission. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise.